What did it matter where you lay once you were dead? In a dirty sump or in a marble tower on top of a high hill? You were dead. You were sleeping the big sleep. You were not bothered by things like that. Oil and water were the same as wind and air to you. You just slept the big sleep, not caring about the nastiness of how you died or where you fell. Me, I was part of the nastiness now. Welcome to Type This Cast. And I'm Becky. And this week I will be flying solo and continuing our series in The Detectives. This week I will be diving deep into the dark and dirty world of hard-boiled fiction and film noir and a special um, obsession of mine. So get ready, grab your scotch or whatever libation you need to prepare yourself to meet some private dicks and femme fatales. This should be a particularly interesting journey as I look closely at these figures through the lens of the Enneagram to see if the Enneagram can shine some light into this dark city while little else ever has. My plan jumping into this episode was to type the overall characters of this form, meaning the private detective and his nemesis, the femme fatale, but let me tell you, that was quite the undertaking. So, I've decided that I will specifically be looking closely at the paragon of this form of crime story with a deep dive into Raymond Chandler's amazing book, The Big Sleep. In order to type the private detective as a character, I'll be using the main character from that story and all of Raymond Chandler's stories, Philip Marlowe. And in order to get to the bottom of the ever-dangerous, alluring, and elusive femme fatale, I will be typing Mrs. Vivian Regan, an interesting figure to say the least. Um, But before diving in, I've got to get a few things off my chest. Firstly, I um, have to confess to you, dear listener, that this topic I'm discussing today is one that I have spent a good amount of time immersed in, really from the time that I was young, but I did my master's thesis on this dark world of hard-boiled noir. Um, I specifically looked at the ways in which noir depicts Hollywood as the darkest and most corrupt city of all. So I spent a lot of time in this land, especially around film and literature, which is what I will be focusing on today. Um, And that just means pairing this genre down into one podcast has been, shall we say difficult. (laughs) I will do my best to keep this short and not to go on too many tangents, but this world is seedy and intriguing, and we need some people willing to dive beneath the dirt to bring it to the surface, and that is just what I am here to do. Are you willing to go on the journey with me? I sure hope so, because it's going to be a lot of fun. All right, so um, as we get started, a short word, hopefully, on the form, on hard-boiled fiction and noir. Uh, For those of you unfamiliar, 
this genre of crime story exists really as a response or a reaction to the genres of crime or detective fiction we've talked about so far. Uh, the writers and creators of hard-boiled fiction and film noir wanted to show the world of crime as it really was, not as a safe, censored, cleaned-up version that allows readers and moviegoers to leave the crime story, feeling that the world is again a safe place. For examples of that, listen to our episodes on Sherlock and a little bit with the Golden Age. Um, so this style of hardened, seedy, realistic crime fiction emerged during the Second World War because people saw the horrors of war, that war in particular, and didn't want their fiction reflected as clean. They wanted to see the world as it was. Um, so to give you just a little bit of the definition of this, I want to hear from the master of noir himself, Raymond Chandler, as he defines it in his essay, A Simple Act of Murder, which is fantastic. He talks about hard-boiled fiction and he says it is a world in which gangsters can rule nations and almost rule cities, in which hotels and apartment houses and celebrated restaurants are owned by men who made their money out of brothels, in which a screen star can be the finger man for the mob. And a nice man down the hall is a boss of a members of a numbers racket, a world where a judge with a cellar full of bootleg liquor can send a man to jail for having a pint in his pocket, where the mayor of your town may have condoned murder as an instrument of money making, where no man can walk down a dark street in safety, because law and order are things we talk about but refrain from practicing. A world where you may witness a holdup in broad daylight and see who did it, but you will fade quickly back into the crowd rather than tell anyone, because the holdup men may have friends with long guns, or the police may not like your testimony, and in any case, the shyster for the defense will be allowed to abuse and vilify you in open court, before a jury of selected morons, without any but the perfunctory interference from a political judge." So that's our definition for this delightful world we're jumping into. It's a world where the reality of life is hard and dark and no one comes away with their hands clean. Um, and just to give you an idea of what we're looking at, if you've seen in our, you know, 90s to today times, uh, anything from Dick Tracy to Who Framed Roger Rabbit to Pulp Fiction to Sin City, these are all modern plays on the form. If you have seen those, if you understand what those are doing, you understand noir. Noir really exists as the air that we breathe. Um, it's most recognizable <clears throat> through the quick, harsh, witty way it is written. This is why it's called hard-boiled fiction. It's the language. It feels like the language has gone through a vat of boiling oil and come out just a little bit bitter and dirty. And uh, also, it is generally just dripping with sexual innuendo. Um, there are so many examples I could give to give you an idea, but I'm going to use a few from our mentor text for tonight, The Big Sleep. My favorite noir quip being, she had lovely legs. I would say that for her. They were a couple of smooth citizens, she and her father. 
that quick witty turn of phrase that always implicates you, the reader, into the innuendo. You were thinking about her sexually. I was just talking about her dad. Um, Another favorite of mine that is very typical of the form because it's looking at poverty as well. I've been shaking two nickels together for a month trying to get them to mate. So this form is just quick quips, one-liners, back and forth play as you watch this crime story unfold. Cynical, dark, because the world is dark. Um, And as I've been talking about this, you may have noticed that I've spent time talking about both film and literature. And that is the really fun thing about noir and hard-boiled crime stories, is that the film and print industry are pretty incestuous. The heyday of this genre was during around the 1940s when film was booming and the authors who were writing the short stories and the novels were also writing the screenplays for all of the films. So you have the most prominent names, Raymond Chandler, who we're looking at today, Dashiell Hammett, James M. Cain, They're all part of film and literature together, but none more prominent than our author today, Raymond Chandler. Um, I'm not going to spend time listing all of the best films of this genre because that would be far too much of a tangent. If you're interested, check out the show notes. I'll give several recommendations, but I will leave you with the best noir to have ever been created. And that's not just me saying that. Most critics agree. It's Double Indemnity, which... Um, was actually co-written by our author today, Raymond Chandler, but it's all about adultery and murder and insurance fraud. I'll leave that with you. Please watch it if you have not. All right. So on to the author and story at hand. So uh, a little background on our author because it ends up being really important. Raymond Chandler was born in Chicago, a city known for crime, and he lived, though, most of his childhood in England, and he was there during the height of Golden Age fiction, so he read a lot of Christie. He read a lot of that British parlor-style fiction. Um, He also worked as a journalist early in London, and he saw crime stories firsthand. He then served in World War I in the Royal Air Force, and he saw the horrors of war, after which he moved to the U.S., lived in California. He worked for a number of really corrupt oil companies for a while, which plays a big role in his literature, especially the novel we're looking at today. Um, and... His career ended in the oil industry with the Great Depression, which is when he moved into publishing stories. He published in the most famous periodical of the time, Black Mask, and he wrote a ton for Hollywood. Any noir film, really any film of the 40s and 50s, probably has Raymond Chandler involved in it in some way, shape, or form. He was quite prolific. And then he ended his days in La Jolla, which is close to my heart because I grew up in San Diego and I know exactly where he spent time. And really fun fact, he was drinking buddies with none other than Theodore Geisel, 
Dr. Seuss himself. So the dark noir murder author and Dr. Seuss would have drinks. Just think about that for a minute. It it brings me way more joy than it probably should. All right. Um, so as we get into this, um, really, one thing I want to call out because of my focus for this episode is that most of the structure of hard-boiled fiction was built around the beaten down, poor, world-weary, private detective, private dick, Seamus, peeper, whatever quippy slang you want to throw at him, and it all is in these hard-boiled stories. And he's solving a murder, usually after a woman comes slinking into his poorly lit office and cue that salacious saxophone music as she walks in. This private detective is a man who had the hard side of a broken stick. He is beaten down. He is powerless in a really corrupt and wicked world. But he would take this case from this gorgeous woman because he needs the money and the girl's not so bad to look at either. After a lot of brutal fighting, many murders, and more death than is ever expected, this private dick will face down the barrel of a diamond-studded gun at the woman herself who has perpetrated the crime after all, this entire time solving the crime, and it's usually this femme fatale, this wicked and wily woman. And this woman did what she had to do in a world that told her who she was supposed to be and what she was supposed to be. So really the moral of this story, this crime story, is that crime leaves no one clean in the end. Everyone is implicated, including you, dear listener, dear reader. So with that bright thought, let's, uh, let's dive into the big sleep. Let's look at this dark world through the lens of the Enneagram. Before I jump in, though, let's have a brief reminder, as we always do, of the monikers that we've come up with for our nine Enneagram types and the short I statements, just to remind us as I jump into typing these characters. So we have type one, which is known as the reformer, who says, I do everything the right way. We have type two, the befriender, I help others. We have type three, the motivator. I am seen as successful. We have type four, the romantic. I am unique. We have type five, the observer. I need to understand the world. We have type six, the guardian. I need to be secure. Type seven, the enthusiast. I am happy and open to new things. We have type eight, the challenger. I must be strong. And we have type nine, the peacemaker. I am agreeable. Now, just remember, as we always say, do not type people in real life. I'll thump you for it. Just just kidding. I get a little carried away with hard-boiled talk sometimes. But really, if you're wondering why we call this a party foul, why we harp on this so much, and how much damage we think it can do if you type people in your life without letting them find their number for themselves. 
listen to uh, season one, episode 0.5. It gives our whole introduction to the Enneagram and why we think this is all so important. All right. We come down to the straight and dirty facts. Let's type this cast. So starting with Philip Marlowe, Phil, our PI, he is bright and shiningly an Enneagram type one. And later on, we'll look closely at our femme fatale, Mrs. Vivian Regan. And she is pretty, pretty strongly a type eight. Um, so let's start with Marlowe, who is the protagonist of the story and the narrator of the story. So we really see his inner monologue, his motivations. We see everything going on in his head. And just the form of the private detective in hard-boiled fiction is absolutely a moralistic, right-seeking, calling out the wrong and corruption of the world Enneagram Type 1, who is known as the Reformer. So he is just always doing what is right. He is always using his gut intuition, the space, the intelligence center for our one is in the gut triad. He is going with his gut, following his intuition, even before he thinks about what he's doing. And Marlowe, more than most, is not in this profession for the money. He's not in it to get rich. He does this bad, sometimes compromised thing, which goes against some of his morals because the world is a dark place and he can be the knight on a white horse. That is sort of the form Chandler gave in that essay I mentioned earlier, The Simple Art of Murder, for the private detective. And just to, um, you know, hit that nail on the head, when we first meet Marlowe, he walks into the home of the Sternwoods, his rich clients, and he looks up at the stained glass, which is depicting nothing other than a knight. And I quote, There was a broad stained glass panel showing a knight in dark armor rescuing a lady who was tied to a tree and didn't have any clothes on, but some very long inconvenient hair. The knight had pushed the visor of his helmet back to be sociable, and he was fiddling with the knots on the ropes that tied the lady to the tree and not getting anywhere. I stood there and thought if I lived in this house, I would sooner or later have to climb up there and help him. He didn't seem to be really trying. I just love that quotation tied to the idea of the P.I. as the knight in shining armor, the one as the reformer who is coming to save the damsel in distress. And even as he's walking into this house, he's judging everything he sees. Ones often come forward with judgment. They notice the first thing they notice in a room is what's wrong. So he sees that even this knight on the stained glass is doing it wrong. He's saving the girl wrong. And eventually he just have to, you know, pick up his sack and go and save her. Um, I think one of the best ways that we see Marlowe as a one is if you know anything about Philip Marlowe, if you're familiar with any of the stories, 
the thing you are familiar with is the cost of Marlowe as a private detective in a world where there were detectives that were seedy and taking advantage of their rich clients, sapping their money. Marlowe doesn't. So here is a conversation he has with the DA in Hollywood. What are you getting for it all? $25 a day and expenses. That would make $50 and a little gasoline so far. About that. And for that amount of money, you're willing to get yourself in Dutch with half the law enforcement of this county? I don't like it, I said. But what the hell am I to do? I'm on a case. I'm selling what I have to sell to make a living. What little guts and intelligence the Lord gave me and a willingness to get pushed around in order to protect a client. So Marlowe, first of all, $25 a day and expenses is all he charges. And he's everything he's doing. He is possibly getting in trouble. I'll talk about this in a second, but getting in trouble with all of the law enforcement in town for keeping information from them, which the information he was keeping was about a murder, which is pretty wrong. But it's because he's on a case and what is right is protecting his client. So that is what he will do. But he also notices what is wrong. So the one, when we talk about in Enneagram One, we talk a lot about the inner critic, the voice that is just always talking, always going, always speaking in their head about what is wrong, what is right, judging themselves. And Marlowe 100% has this. We have so many instances of that, but one of the best. That left me. I had concealed a murder and suppressed evidence for 24 hours. But I was still at large and had a $500 check coming. The smart thing for me to do was to take another drink and to forget this whole mess. And of course, as an Enneagram one, that is not what he's going to do. He's not going to choose the quote unquote smart choice. He's going to choose the right choice, which is to continue with this case because the corruption has not been unseated because there's so much crime still left, even though he solved the case the Sternwoods asked him to, which was a simple extortion case from a man who he saw murdered. But now there's a murder case and there's blackmail and there's a heck of a lot more going on. And so he even sees what's happening with that and is judging himself for it, for not telling the police about the murder. That wasn't right. So he has to make it right because it's on him to make it right. Another instance that I think is just a tragic thing I see in Marlowe that I talk to a lot of ones that this is often a problem. Um, Marlowe is describing the world he saw, and he just says, it was a crisp morning with just enough snap in the air to make life seem simple and sweet. If you didn't have too much on your mind, I had. And here he notices the simple beauty of the morning, that it was crisp and sweet and nice, but he is not allowed to enjoy that. It's for other people. He has to follow through with his case. He has to notice what's wrong in the world and fix it. And um, 
the Enneagram Institute, when they talk about ones, they put it really perfectly, especially for Marlowe himself. They say ones feel that they, quote, have a mission to fulfill in life, if only to try their best to reduce the disorder they see in their environment. And that is the definition of Marlowe. Always being on a mission, on a case to end the corruption in the world. And speaking of the corruption in his environment, Marlowe is always calling it out. It is always the private detective in these hard-boiled novels to notice the dark side of the world, to notice that the world is broken and sinful and seedy and dark. And Marlowe calls it out every time. It's like a compulsion. He has to call out the bad in the world. What is wrong? Um, Just a few examples of this. He says, as for the cover up, I've been in police business myself, as you know. They come a dime a dozen in any big city. Cops get very large and emphatic when an outsider tries to hide anything, but they do the same thing every other day to oblige their friends and anybody with a little pull. So right there, he's calling out the corruption within the police force that they tell him and other private detectives not to cover things up, but they're always doing it for whoever has money or whoever is their friend. And Marlowe, that's actually, we get his backstory in a later book, but that's why he left the police force because it was so corrupt. Now he chooses the rules and he lives by his moral code, which is far higher than the police force he was working for. You also have so many other examples. One, but noises like that don't mean much anymore. When a gun goes off in an apartment in an attempted murder that he's in, he sort of checks the hallway, checks the world to see if anyone's reacting. And no one does because they live in L.A. And Hollywood is where all of the murder happens. It's this seedy city and no one even responds to gunfire anymore. And one of my favorite call outs, he says, and that's what they call humane execution in our state now. After he vividly describes the gas chamber at San Quentin that would be set up for a criminal that he's trying to get to talk to him. But he even as he's using that as a bargaining chip, he is calling out that it's not right. It's not the best. It could be better. In fact, he could make it better. So I am just thoroughly convinced (laughs) that Philip Marlowe and thus the private detective as a form is an Enneagram one based on doing right. That inner critic calling out what is wrong in them and the whole world around them. All right, so now we've got the PI nailed down. Let's look at the femme fatale, Mrs. Vivian Sternwood Regan. Before I talk about Vivian, though, I do want to touch on something unique in this book um, and something that we've addressed a little bit in this podcast, but not thoroughly. The fact that... In order to type oneself, it is impossible if you are in trauma or suffering from a mental illness of some sort. That can affect 
your behaviors and that look. And that is why I chose Vivian as our femme fatale and not, if you're familiar with the text, Carmen, her sister, Carmen Sternwood, who is the true form of the femme fatale. She's the one who commits the crimes. Um, But that's one of the reasons I chose The Big Sleep, because I love it as it undermines even the expected form of noir fiction of the simple black and white P.I. versus femme fatale. So um, when I look at Carmen, you could possibly see her as a seven, but because she's always sort of seeking out the most fun thing, which for her is often seediness, as she is a rich socialite female who has really no opportunities for more than just a life of silliness and debauchery. So she follows it. But I think we see in almost every scenario that she's in, she has these fits of insanity, including epilepsy and Moments that she just remembers nothing of what's going on. One could argue that that's a show. I could see an argument for that. But I really think because her sister knows her so well and because of the resolution at the end coming from Marlo is that she needs to get help. She needs to be put into a hospital somehow. Um, So... I just think that that makes it too hard to type her. And also, it's it's unethical (laughs) to type a person who is not completely there or really responsible for their actions. So with that, I decided to type her sister, who her sister also just gets more screen time, really. Like, she is the main female in this text, uh, the femme fatale against or with, or is it, uh, Marlowe's private detective. So I propose that Vivian Regan, and thus the form of all femme fatales, is an Enneagram 8. She exists in a world that is constantly trying to control her and to tie her down, and she uses all of her power... (laughs) excuse me, especially her womanly wiles to avoid being controlled, which is really the central motivation of an eight. Eights do not want to be controlled. She also acts in every moment of this story to protect those in her life that are important to her and that are vulnerable and would be dreadfully harmed without her. And that's her sister, Carmen, who suffers from some sort of mental illness, and her father, who is crippled and on his deathbed. So she spends this entire novel protecting them. And I argue, I contend, that every femme fatale we see is doing that, whether it's protecting the vulnerable people around them or just trying to exist in a world that tells her that she, as a woman, 
only has one option to be a wife and mother, to live into this form that she does not fit into, that she doesn't want to be controlled and told she just has to be a wife. So she does whatever she can to live her own life, to tell her own story. And Vivian is a great example of this. All right. So she, Vivian, spends so much time distracting and attempting to seduce our moralistic and one-ish detective Marlowe in order to keep him off the trail of the crimes and corruption of her family, which would put them all in danger. That is her motivating factor. That is what she is always trying to do. Keep people off the trail, not see the vulnerable underbelly of herself and her family. So the first line we get from her, the first spoken line is to Marlowe. And she says, so you're a private detective. I didn't know they really existed except in books or else they were greasy little men snooping around hotels. So she starts with this line that is completely combative, trying to see if Marlowe will take the bait and pick it up and argue with her. And this is just a stereotypically eight-ish talk style. Eights are always combative, always seeing if you will rise to their challenge. They are known as the challenger. And she starts with an on guard with her sword out ready to fight with Marlo to quip. And it's always about the witty quippy back and forth. And I'll get into that in a minute. And she is always playing this game of control with Marlowe and playing with him. Um, and later in that same quotation, as they're talking, she is really trying to figure out what it is her father hired Marlowe for, but she doesn't want to come out and say that she wants to know because she wants to have the power and information is power. So Marlowe describes this scene. He says, she got cunning. Her whole body seemed to go lax. Then she smiled at me winningly. He didn't tell you then. Her voice was almost gleeful, as if she had outsmarted me. Maybe she had. He told me about Mr. Regan, yes. That's not what he wanted to see me about. Is that what you've been trying to get me to say? I'm sure I don't care what you say. So, <laughs> Vivian is playing this clever game and trying to get information from Marlowe without him noticing. And in the end, when he notices, she just plays it off like, you can't know my vulnerability. I'm going to change the subject. I don't care what you think, which is a very typical eight-ish statement. Um, and then <laughs> oh, one of my favorite examples, something that happens with eights often is just a blow up. <laughs> when you underestimate them or misjudge them. And Marlowe intensely insults Vivian by underestimating her for being this rich socialite. He says, so you like roulette, you would. She crossed her legs and lit another cigarette. Yes, I like roulette. All Sternwoods like losing games. 
like roulette and marrying men that walk out on them. The Sternwoods have money. All it has brought them is a rain check. So Marlowe makes an assumption about her and she just ha- lets him have it. He assumed that because she's rich, she's just this flighty socialite who likes to play games where she loses a lot of money, but her family has had real pain and he is dismissing that with that statement and she will have none of that. Um, something that really convinced me that Vivian and the femme fatale at large was an eight is something a lot of eights tell me that they have experienced is people telling them that they're too much or feeling like they're too much. They are big. They are so much of everything. They have a lot of energy. They have a lot of passion and life. And a cop is describing Vivian to Marlowe, talking about her many marriages. And he says, she'd make a jazzy weekend, but she'd be wearing for a steady diet. So this idea that she is just a lot to take and he just doesn't have time for that. Um, and I think that's something that's really interesting about female eights. And the femme fatale is just such a great expression of this is that they're so often seen as mannish, as being passionate, as having a lot of energy, as being combative, doing all of these things that are seen as stereotypically masculine. And so it's an uphill battle. So I think the femme fatale as a character is made an eight because she is battling up against all of the gender norms and social norms that exist. And so I really think that it is a way to look into this Enneagram eightness, especially female eightness, as a way of not being controlled, of just telling your own story and living in a world that's trying to keep you down. Um, my last example for our femme fatale, which is certainly not the least. This is the most iconic picture of a femme fatale. Comes in the form of sex. The passion of the eight is said to be lust. Now, to be clear, that does not mean that it is always in a sexual way. It's just big feeling, lusting after energy, the biggest thing. But eights can definitely be known to use their sexuality as a weapon. And this is the number one tool in the box of the femme fatale. And uh, Marlo gets a little bit inquisitive with Vivian. And they've already had this flirtatious back and forth throughout the entire novel. And he's asking some questions that are getting a little too close to the vulnerable truth. So she does what any good femme fatale does. They're driving and she says, move closer, she said almost thickly. I moved out from under the middle of the seat. She turned her body a little away from me as if to peer out of the window. Then she let herself fall backwards, without a sound, into my arms. Her head almost struck the wheel. Her eyes were closed. Her face was dim. Then I saw that her eyes opened and flickered, the shine of them visible even in the darkness. Hold me close, you beast, she said. Now, let's just start with how 
movie perfect stereotypical this is. So when Vivian doesn't immediately distract him, immediately get him off the trail, she sees that he is not giving in. She goes straight to the reaction of an eight, also in the gut triad like the one, goes immediately to anger and she calls him a son of a bitch and she turns it off. And the Enneagram Institute describes eights really perfectly looking back on all of these examples of that passion of Vivian saying eights do not want to be controlled or allow others to have power over them whether the power is psychological sexual social or financial and Marlowe asking these questions threatens all of these and it especially threatens her vulnerable family's dark secret and it could control her she could no longer have the freedom that she has if Marlo figured out what really happened so with that I contend Vivian Regan and Femme Fatales at large are Enneagram 8s all right dear listeners thank you so much for going down this dark and dirty, seedy road with me and looking closely into my passion of hard-boiled and noir crime fiction with me. I'd like, as always, to thank Matt Ziganis for the use of his music. Check out his songs on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and any other music streaming or purchasing places. I'd like to thank my delightfully dangerous doppelganger and co-host Janelle Miller for allowing me the freedom to travel down this road into noir. And of course, thank you to our ineffable sound wizard, Joel Miller. And we would especially like to thank you, my dear listeners. I've enjoyed having you along for this literary and cinematic Enneagram journey, and I hope you've enjoyed the ride as well. Find us on social media on Twitter at TypeThisCast, Instagram at TypeThisCast, and please, please, please email your thoughts on this one to TypeThisCast at gmail.com to continue the conversation. I'd love to hear your thoughts on private detectives and femme fatales. If you have any disagreements, I want to hear about it. Um, And look out this week for your chance to type this cast with our hard-boiled poll. As always, If you liked what you're hearing, please, please go rate and review us on iTunes. That really does help find more people, help people find us. And really, the more people that find us, the more broad conversations we can have and the more interesting stories we can look into through the lens of the Enneagram. Um, I'm really hoping one of these days to get to dive into Harry Potter. So stay tuned for that. Um, And I'll leave you today with the ineffable words of my very favorite author, Neil Gaiman, from his magical poem instructions. Trust dreams, trust your heart, and trust your story.